Section 9 of The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Chapter 5. Part 4. The Reparation Commission. This body is so remarkable a construction, and may, if it functions at all, exert so wide an influence on the life of Europe, that its attributes deserve a separate examination. There are no precedents for the indemnity imposed on Germany under the present treaty, for the money exactions which form part of the settlement after previous wars have differed in two fundamental respects from this one. The sum demanded has been determinate, and has been measured in a lump sum of money, and, so long as the defeated party was meeting the annual installments of cash, no consequential interference was necessary. But for reasons already elucidated, the exactions in this case are not yet determinate, and the sum, when fixed, will prove in excess of what can be paid in cash, and in excess also of what can be paid at all. It was necessary, therefore, to set up a body to establish the bill of claim, to fix the mode of payment, and to approve necessary abatements and delays. It was only possible to place this body in a position to exact the utmost, year by year, by giving it wide powers over the internal economic life of the enemy countries, which are to be treated henceforward as bankrupt estates to be administered by and for the benefit of the creditors. In fact, however, its powers and functions have been enlarged even beyond what was required for this purpose and the Reparation Commission has been established as the final arbiter on numerous economic and financial issues, which it was convenient to leave unsettled in the treaty itself. The powers and constitution of the Reparation Commission are mainly laid down in Articles 233 to 241 and Annex II of the Reparation Chapter of the Treaty with Germany. But the same Commission is to exercise authority over Austria and Bulgaria, and possibly over Hungary and Turkey, when peace is made with these countries. There are, therefore, analogous articles, mutatis mudandis, in the Austrian Treaty and the Bulgarian Treaty. The principal allies are each represented by one chief delegate. The delegates of the United States, Great Britain, France, and Italy take part in all proceedings. The delegate of Belgium in all proceedings except those attended by the delegates of Japan or the Serb-Croat-Slovene state. The delegate of Japan in all proceedings affecting maritime or specifically Japanese questions and the delegate of the Serb-Croat-Slovene state when questions relating to Austria, Hungary, or Bulgaria are under consideration. Other allies are to be represented by delegates without the power to vote whenever their respective claims and interests are under examination. In general, the Commission decides by a majority vote, except in certain specific cases where unanimity is required, and of which the most important are the cancellation of German indebtedness, long postponement of the installments, and the sale of German bonds of indebtedness. The Commission is endowed with full executive authority to carry out its decisions. It may set up an executive staff and delegate authority to its officers. The Commission and its staff are to enjoy diplomatic privileges, and its salaries are to be paid by Germany, who will, however, have no voice in fixing them. If the Commission is to discharge adequately its numerous functions, it will be necessary for it to establish a vast polyglot bureaucratic organization with staff of hundreds. To this organization, the headquarters of which will be in Paris, the economic destiny of Central Europe is to be entrusted. Its main functions are as follows. 1. The Commission will determine the precise figure of the claim against the enemy powers by an examination, in detail, of the claims of each of the Allies under Annex I of the Reparation Chapter. This task must be completed by May 1921. It shall give to the German government and to Germany's Allies a, quote, 
just opportunity to be heard, but not to take any part whatever in the decisions of the Commission, unquote. That is to say, the Commission will act as a party and a judge at the same time. 2. Having determined the claim, it will draw up a schedule of payments providing for the discharge of the whole sum with interest within 30 years. From time to time, it shall, with a view to modifying the schedule within the limits of possibility, consider the resources and capacity of Germany, giving her representatives a just opportunity to be heard. Quote, In periodically estimating Germany's capacity to pay, the Commission shall examine German system of taxation, first, to the end that the sums for reparation which Germany is required to pay shall become a charge upon all her revenues prior to that for the service or discharge of any domestic loan, and secondly, so as to satisfy itself that, in general, the German scheme of taxation is fully as heavy proportionately as that of any of the powers represented on the Commission." Unquote. 3. Up to May 1921, the Commission has power, with a view to securing the payment of $5 billion, to demand the surrender of any piece of German property whatever, wherever situated. That is to say, quote, Germany shall pay in such installments and in such manner, whether in gold, commodities, ships, securities, or otherwise, as the Reparation Commission may fix, unquote. 4. The Commission will decide which of the rights and interests of German nationals in public utility undertakings operating in Russia, China, Turkey, Austria, Hungary, and Bulgaria, or in any territory formerly belonging to Germany or her allies, are to be expropriated and transferred to the Commission itself. It will assess the value of the interests so transferred, and it will divide the spoils. 5. The Commission will determine how much of the resources thus stripped from Germany must be returned to her to keep enough life in her economic organization to enable her to continue to make reparation payments in future. 6. The Commission will assess the value, without appeal or arbitration, of the property and rights ceded under the armistice and under the treaty. Rolling stock, the mercantile marine, river craft, cattle, the Saar mines, the property in ceded territory, for which credit is to be given, and so forth. 7. The Commission will determine the amounts and values, within certain defined limits, of the contributions which Germany is to make in kind, year by year, under the various annexes to the reparation chapter. 8. The Commission will provide for the restitution by Germany of property which can be identified. 9. The Commission will receive, administer, and distribute all receipts from Germany in cash or in kind, it will also issue and market German bonds of indebtedness. 10. The Commission will assign the shares of the pre-war public debt to be taken over by the ceded areas of Schleswig, Poland, Danzig, and Upper Silesia. The Commission will also distribute the public debt of the late Austro-Hungarian Empire between its constituent parts. 11. The Commission will liquidate the Austro-Hungarian Bank and will supervise the withdrawal and replacement of the currency system of the late Austro-Hungarian Empire. 12. It is for the Commission to report if, in their judgment, Germany is falling short in fulfilling her obligations, and to advise methods of coercion. 13. In general, the Commission, acting through a subordinate body, will perform the same functions for Austria and Bulgaria as for Germany, and also, presumably, for Hungary and Turkey. There are also many other relatively minor duties assigned to the Commission. The above summary, however, shows sufficiently the scope and significance of its authority. 
This authority is rendered of far greater significance by the fact that the demands of the treaty generally exceed Germany's capacity. Consequently, the clauses which allow the Commission to make abatements, if in their judgment the economic conditions of Germany require it, will render it in many different particulars the arbiter of Germany's economic life. The Commission is not only to inquire into Germany's general capacity to pay, and to decide in the early years what import of foodstuffs and raw materials is necessary, it is authorized to exert pressure on the German system of taxation and on German internal expenditure with the view to ensuring that reparation payments are a first charge on the country's entire resources, and it is to decide on the effect of German economic life, of demands for machinery, cattle, etc., and of the scheduled deliveries of coal. By Article 240 of the Treaty, Germany expressly recognizes the Commission and its powers, quote, as the same may be constituted by the Allied and Associated Governments, unquote, and agrees irrevocably to the possession and exercise by such Commission of the power and authority given to it under the present treaty. She undertakes to furnish the Commission with all relevant information. And finally, in Article 241, quote, Germany undertakes to pass, issue, and maintain in force any legislation, orders, and decrees that may be necessary to give complete effect to these provisions. Unquote. The comments on this of the German Financial Commission at Versailles were hardly an exaggeration. Quote, German democracy is thus annihilated at the very moment when the German people was about to build it up after a severe struggle, annihilated by the very persons who throughout the war never tired of maintaining that they sought to bring democracy to us. Germany is no longer a people and a state, but becomes a mere trade concern placed by its creditors in the hands of a receiver, without its being granted so much as the opportunity to prove its willingness to meet its obligations of its own accord. The Commission, which is to have its permanent headquarters outside Germany, will possess in Germany incomparably greater rights than the German Emperor ever possessed. The German people under its regime would remain for decades to come, shorn of all rights, and deprived, to a far greater extent than any people in the days of absolutism, of any independence of action, of any individual aspiration in its economic or even in its ethical progress. In their reply to these observations, the Allies refused to admit that there was any substance, ground, or force in them. The observations of the German delegation, they pronounced, present a view of this commission so distorted and so inexact that it is difficult to believe that the clauses of the treaty have been calmly and carefully examined. It is not an engine of oppression or a device for interfering with German sovereignty. It has no forces at its command. It has no executive powers within the territory of Germany. It cannot, as is suggested, direct or control the educational or other systems of the country. Its business is to ask what is to be paid, to satisfy itself that Germany can pay, and to report to the powers, whose delegation it is, in case Germany makes default. If Germany raises the money required in her own way, the Commission cannot order that it shall be raised in some other way. If Germany offers payment in kind, the Commission may accept such payment, but, except as specified in the treaty itself, the Commission cannot require such a payment. This is not a candid statement of the scope and authority of the Reparation Commission, as will be seen by a comparison of its terms with the summary given above, or with the treaty itself. Is not, for example, the statement that the Commission has no forces at its command a little difficult to justify in view of Article 430 of the treaty, which runs... In case, either during the occupation or after the expiration of the fifteen years referred to above, 
the reparation commission finds that germany refuses to observe the whole or part of her obligations under the present treaty with regard to reparation the whole or part of the areas specified in article four twenty nine will be reoccupied immediately by the allied and associated powers the decision as to whether germany has kept her engagements and whether it is possible for her to keep them is left it should be observed not to the league of nations but to the reparation commission itself and an adverse ruling on the part of the commission is to be followed immediately by the use of armed force moreover the depreciation of the powers of the commission attempted in the allied reply largely proceeds from the assumption that it is quite open to germany to raise the money required in her own way in which case it is true that many of the powers of the reparation commission would not come into practical effect whereas in truth one of the main reasons for setting up the commission at all is the expectation that germany will not be able to carry the burden nominally laid upon her it is reported that the people of vienna hearing that a section of the reparation commission is about to visit them have decided characteristically to pin their hopes on it a financial body can obviously take nothing from them for they have nothing therefore this body must be for the purpose of assisting and relieving them thus do the viennese argue still light-headed in adversity but perhaps they are right the reparation commission will come into very close contact with the problems of europe and it will bear a responsibility proportionate to its powers it may thus come to fulfill a very different role from that which some of its authors intended for it transferred to the league of nations an appanage of justice and no longer of interest who knows that by a change of heart and object the reparation commission may not yet be transformed from an instrument of oppression and rapine into an economic council of europe whose object is the restoration of life and of happiness even in the enemy countries chapter five part five the german counter-proposals the german counter-proposals were somewhat obscure and also rather disingenuous it will be remembered that those clauses of the reparation chapter which dealt with the issue of bonds by germany produced on the public mind the impression that the indemnity had been fixed at twenty five billion dollars or at any rate at this figure as a minimum the german delegation set out therefore to construct their reply on the basis of this figure assuming apparently that public opinion in allied countries would not be satisfied with less than the appearance of twenty five billion dollars and as they were not really prepared to offer so large a figure they exercised their ingenuity to produce a formula which might be represented to allied opinion as yielding this amount whilst really representing a much more modest sum the formula produced was transparent to anyone who read it carefully and knew the facts and it could hardly have been expected by its authors to deceive the allied negotiators the german tactic assumed therefore that the latter were secretly as anxious as the germans themselves to arrive at a settlement which bore some relation to the facts and that they would therefore be willing, in view of the entanglements which they had got themselves into with their own publics, to practice a little collusion in drafting the treaty, a supposition which in slightly different circumstances might have had a good deal of foundation. As matters actually were, this subtlety did not benefit them, and they would have done much better with a straightforward and candid estimate of what they believed to be the amount of their liabilities on the one hand, and their capacity to pay on the other. The German offer of an alleged sum of $25 billion dollars amounted to the following in the first place it was conditional on concessions in the treaty ensuring that quote, germany shall retain the territorial integrity corresponding to the armistice convention that she shall keep her colonial possessions and merchant ships including those of large tonnage that in her own country and in the world at large she shall enjoy the same freedom of action as all other peoples that all war legislation shall be at once annulled 
and that all interferences during the war with their economic rights and with German private property, etc., shall be treated in accordance with the principles of reciprocity, unquote. That is to say, the offer is conditional on the greater part of the rest of the treaty being abandoned. In the second place, the claims are not to exceed a maximum of $25 billion, of which $5 billion is to be discharged by May 1, 1926, and no part of this sum is to carry interest pending the payment of it. In the third place, there are to be allowed as credit against it, amongst other things, a. the value of all deliveries under the armistice, including military material, for example, Germany's navy, b. the value of all railways and state property in ceded territory, c. the pro rata share of all ceded territory in the German public debt, including the war debt, and in the reparation payments which this territory would have had to bear if it had remained part of Germany, and d. the value of the cession of German's claims for sums lent by her to her allies in the war. The credits to be deducted under A, B, C, and D might be in excess of those allowed in the actual treaty, according to a rough estimate, by a sum of as much as $10 billion, although the sum to be allowed under D can hardly be calculated. If, therefore, we are to estimate the real value of the German offer of $25 billion on the basis laid down by the treaty, we must first of all deduct $10 billion claimed for offsets which the treaty does not allow, and then have the remainder in order to obtain the present value of a deferred payment on which interest is not chargeable. This reduces the offer to $7.5 billion as compared with the $40 billion, which, according to my rough estimate, the treaty demands of her. This in itself was a very substantial offer. Indeed, it evoked widespread criticism in Germany, though in view of the fact that it was conditional on the abandonment of the greater part of the rest of the treaty, it could hardly be regarded as a serious one but the German delegation would have done better if they had stated in less equivocal language how far they felt able to go. In the final reply of the Allies to this counter-proposal, there is one important provision, which I have not attended to hitherto, but which can be conveniently dealt with in this place. Broadly speaking, no concessions were entertained on the reparation chapter as it was originally drafted, but the Allies recognized the inconvenience of the indeterminacy of the burden laid upon Germany, and proposed a method by which the final total of claim might be established at an earlier date than May 1st, 1921. They promised, therefore, that at any time within four months of the signature of the treaty, that is to say, up to the end of October 1919, Germany should be at liberty to submit an offer of a lump sum in settlement of her whole liability as defined in the treaty, and within two months thereafter, that is to say, before the end of 1919, the Allies will, so far as may be possible, return their answers to any proposals that may be made. This offer is subject to three conditions. Firstly, the German authorities will be expected, before making such proposals, to confer with the representatives of the powers directly concerned. Secondly, such offers must be unambiguous and must be precise and clear. Thirdly, they must accept the categories and the reparation clauses as matters settled beyond discussion. The offer, as made, does not appear to contemplate any opening up of the problem of Germany's capacity to pay. It is only concerned with the establishment of the total bill of claims as defined in the treaty. Whether, for example, it is $35 billion, $40 billion, or $50 billion. The questions, the Allies' reply adds, are bare questions of fact, namely the amount of the liabilities, and they are susceptible of being treated in this way. If the promised negotiations are really conducted on these lines, they are not likely to be fruitful. It will not be much easier to arrive at an agreed figure before the end of 1919 than it was at the time of the conference, 
and it will not help Germany's financial position to know for certain that she is liable for the huge sum which on any computation the treaty liabilities must amount to. These negotiations do offer, however, an opportunity of reopening the whole question of the reparation payments, although it is hardly to be hoped that at so very early a date public opinion in the countries of the Allies has changed its mood sufficiently. I cannot leave this subject as though its just treatment wholly depended either on our own pledges or on economic facts. The policy of reducing Germany to servitude for a generation, of degrading the lives of millions of human beings, and of depriving a whole nation of happiness, should be abhorrent and detestable. Abhorrent and detestable even if it were possible, even if it enriched ourselves, even if it did not sow the decay of the whole civilized life of Europe. Some preach it in the name of justice. In the great events of man's history, in the unwinding of the complex fates of nations, justice is not so simple. And if it were, nations are not authorized, by religion or by natural morals, to visit on the children of their enemies the misdoings of parents or of rulers. End of section 9 The Economic Consequences of the Peace Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California